you need to start as a company with what is like the purpose for your existence. The interesting thing in gaming is that the players, they don't really care about the company brand. They judge the game by the game itself. But of course, for the team, the brand is important. Basically, our brand building was completely focused on building an employer brand. Welcome to Speak Like a CEO, the leading podcast on CEO and founder communication. My name is Oliver Alst and my guest today is Daniel Stammler. He's one of the co-founders of Colibri Games and you've probably come across one of their many fantastic games. So I've probably played at least one of them. They're very addictive, but fantastic as well. And their story is actually extremely fascinating. That's why I'm so happy that he's here with me today. Hey, Daniel. Thank you for having me. Um, I love the book. You and your co-founders, you're all friends, so three friends, built a fantastic company, which they sold for a lot of money. Um, it's a fantastic book because there's so many interesting stories and lessons, but in a very humorous and lighthearted way so that everyone feels like you, you feel the pain, but you also feel the good times and, and the, the joy you had while doing this. So thank you for writing this. The German title is Mach kein Quatsch. And I would translate this as don't do anything stupid. Would you, do, do you think that captures the spirit? Yeah. So first, thank you for the nice words. Um, it's always great to hear a good feedback, obviously. And I think it catches the spirit, yeah. So for us, like, we are all about kind of like being straightforward, doing our work, business, company straightforward and kind of like, yeah, not do weird things. Not do weird things. Why not? So I think because, or to, to maybe give you a bit more background. So for us, um, we think the company consists in two phases and most product companies do. The first phase is kind of like the phase where you find your product, you find your purpose as a company, you figure out what is it, what you're going to do. And I think in this phase, you need to be a bit more creative and maybe also a bit uh, more weird sometimes. However, this is, at least for us, was a very short phase. The real phase of the company was kind of like building, scaling, making this product into a product that is now used by over 150 million users and um, over the years. And in this phase, I think it's very tempting to do different things, try out different products, kind of like deviate from the path. However, for us, it was very important. Now in hindsight, that we stayed on the path. We did one update every week. We basically just improved the product week by week by week by week. We didn't do any of the temptations. Like, for example, as a gaming company, we're building mobile games. And everybody asked us, like, why aren't you building VR, AR, PC, console, whatsoever? And everything is tempting. But for us, the Mach and Quatsch, don't do weird things, means we stayed on that main game on Idleman Tycoon. 95% of our effort went into this. We did one update every week over many, many years and just focused on it. Uh, amazing. Let's rewind. So let's help people catch up and give some context. So 150 million users, you just said. But what happened before when you had zero users and you and your friends were students in southern Germany? So we always wanted to build a camp company, or at least um, once we started studying. However, we had no idea how this company startup world works because we are from South Germany, Heidenheim. Uh, we barely knew what startups are. We never even read books like, or didn't even know that books like Lean Startup exist. So for us, it was all about building something. And we tried this early in our studies. However, without knowing anything, it was, uh, yeah, 
doomed to fail. So the first projects we did starting in like the second semester at uni all failed, but we got better. We learned, we figured out like how the startup world works. And eventually we discovered gaming for us. The reason why we decided to go into gaming was because on one side, it's a product that we were passionate about, that we enjoyed as users in general, but also because it made sense from a financial perspective, at least in our opinion. Everybody told us to not do it, but we we figured out, we learned that there are gaming companies on mobile that make billions every year. So we thought if we only make 10% of that, we will be a super successful company. So basically, our passion met our our kind of like entrepreneurial financial uh, thinking, and that's how we got into games. Yeah, and you literally started around the kitchen table, right? Yeah, exactly. So I mean, we were still studying back then. We had no money besides like the money it took us to survive as students, and uh, yeah, there was no money to get a fancy or, or to get even some office. So basically, when Janos and I decided we want to go into gaming. And we started looking for other co-founders. We also decided to rent a student apartment in which we both live and which served kind of like as our yeah. uh, first office. And that's where you developed cat, cats and dogs or something along those lines? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So then again, we, we did something weird. Uh, we thought like maybe it would be cool to have a game in which dogs fight versus cats. At the same time, the game was really big, 10 versus 10 multiplayer. And... Um, I have to say that we didn't, we never built a game before, so we had no idea how much work it is. We, however, quickly learned that both, like the idea of the game, the business model of the game, are not really promising, and at the same time, the game was way too big, so we didn't even have a chance to finish it. Which we learned after like roughly six months, when somebody in the industry uh, very bluntly told us that our product is very bad and we should be, feel ashamed for even building something like this. Which was harsh, but also true. So we then decided to kill this project. And by then we also like played all the successful mobile games. We got a good feeling for what's working, what's not working, and then decided to build Idle Miner Tycoon. Idle Miner Tycoon. That's the big one. That's the one with 150 exactly. million. And when did you start with that? So we started in uh, like I think May 2016 or so. Quite the journey, yeah. So what, what I find super interesting in the book is that you describe the working environment. So you basically in your apartment, in your flat, so you start hiring people after a while because Idle Miner Tycoon is, is uh, doing really well. People download it, they play it, and you found ways to monetize it. Um, but the company culture seems quite unusual for a gaming company, at least as, as we probably imagine it, right? You had very strict working times. It was very quiet. Um, you were eating together. Six o'clock, that's it. No overtime. Why did you establish a company culture like that? So maybe it's also part of our uh, don't do weird things uh, or mach kein Quatsch. So for us, it was always clear that like, Of course, it's fun to work in gaming, but it's still work and we still need to make sure that in the end of the day, we are successful, that we are efficient, that we are like good workers basically in the end. And for us, like we, we never really liked like this extremely relaxed started, started atmosphere where everybody comes in at 11 and then uh, goes to lunch and plays ping pong all day. So for us, it was clear that to be successful, we also need to work hard. Um, which doesn't mean that we didn't have fun together, uh, but then usually like this happened after 
after 6 p.m. And like the team, we were still all young, still very good friends. And so we, we had fun together, but it was clear that at work we we're going to focus, which also meant, for example, that in our, so we, we had three rooms in the student apartment. This is where this all started. Janos' room, my room, and uh, the living room, basically, and also uh, the kitchen. And basically, we all sat in the living room, and it kind of like felt very distracting if some people like had a meeting in the living room while others were sitting there. So eventually, during we we transformed our living uh, our bedrooms to meeting rooms during the days, and went there if we had something to discuss to not disturb the others. And then we had like this short while where Edelmar Tycoon took off within like a few months and we were still in the apartment and like we started to look for an office, but obviously like you can't get an office from one day to the next. So we had like three or four months where we actually had employees that worked in, in our student apartment. So then it became a bit crowded and full, <laughs> but, but, but basically, but as like, I mean, there was no, no other chance. So we, we could have waited until we have an office, but for us, this was no option to wait with our growth until we have an office. So we told everybody, Hey, so we work here for now. We're looking for a new office. But this is uh, it for now. Yeah, I mean, in terms of um, you know preserving preserving the cash flow of the company, that's certainly probably the most uh, efficient thing to do. Yeah, I mean, I mean, in the beginning, it wasn't even like it wasn't even an option. I mean, we had no money. We right. we, we don't have like rich parents or whatever. We we, we talked to some investors, but so we basically told them we were back then we were five founders, we we're five guys from uni. We never built anything successful. Neither. Did we ever build a game? Uh, can we have your investment? And everybody was like, yeah, no, thanks. Um, so for us, like, uh, I mean, we, we, we had enough money to survive. We like yeah. worked on the side. Our parents supported us. Uh, but we didn't. We certainly didn't have uh, like a few thousand euros per month to pay for an office. So it wasn't even an option to go into an office. And then, hmm. of course, like once we, we earned money with Idolmartech, and then the first thing was to go into yeah. an office. And, but for me, it's even more like this is the financial aspect, but for me, it's also way deeper. I think it's you, you need to start as a company with what is like the purpose for your existence. You need to have some product, something, whatever your, your goal of the company is. But I think you should focus on that first. And only once you have this, you should like build an office and have nice contracts and all those things. But all your energy should go into building your purpose and pro like pro providing some proof that there is a reason that like your customers, whether, whether it's B2B, B2C, doesn't matter, that there should be a purpose for existence. And there are some companies that start with like spending months on building the right company contract and all those things. And then like they, they waste all this time and, and then eventually it turns out the product that they built is not successful, nobody wants it. However, they spend all this energy, all this time into building like the right legal framework and finding the right office, waiting until everybody moves there. So for us, we didn't even have the chance to move to an office, but I yeah. still believe it's the right way to first focus on the purpose of your existence as a company and secondly, do all those things around it. Yeah, uh, that's fascinating. And uh, what I also found interesting is that you say in the book that you didn't do any marketing in the beginning because you thought it was like kind of you know fluffy or superfluous. But then you discovered marketing. It's like, gosh, you know, this thing really works. Yeah, um, I mean, so coming from like our student apartment, self-financed. Uh, background, we were always very, very, very cautious about spending money because we didn't have any investors' money and we knew that every euro we spend, we need to 
earned first. And when we launched the game, so we basically, or the game, we uploaded it to Apple and Google, just clicked on go live. And luckily we got like a good baseline of downloads in the first few weeks. It was like 200 downloads a day or so. Now in hindsight, that's a really low number, but back then for us sitting in the student department, 200 people actually downloading our game wow. was like a good number. And we saw that like they actually enjoy playing the game, got very good reviews. They came back the next days. And so we, we knew there is like a, this game has something. Um, and then it went to like, I think 10,000 downloads a day organically. So we, we got a good baseline of downloads. We made like, after like roughly nine months or so, we made also roughly 10K a day in revenue. We had low costs, so it was nice. It was uh, kind of like comfortable. Um, and we didn't even spend one euro to, to acquire, to get those users. They just found- Just word of mouth and yeah, trying, yeah. So I think the, the main reason was the Google Play algorithms. So we are on Google Play and on iOS, and usually they are roughly the same size. Uh, back then we got 90% of our downloads from Google Play. And what we believe, our theory is that for some reason people looked for a similar game and then Google saw it has good KPIs and Google is always quite good with like um, showing games or apps to, to users that could like it. Like there are always, if you look at an app in Google Play, there are related apps. Like yeah. A lot of algorithmic places, and we think that for some reason the Google Play algorithm liked our game. So we ranked well, we, we got shown to a lot of users and got a good baseline of downloads. You take the wins, right? Google likes you. <laughs> cool. Yeah, it was really nice. But also at the same time, um, once we reached those 10K downloads, there was like, it was it, and it was stable. We made nice money. Plateau, plateau uh, exactly, reached. <laughs> uh, and then, so the game is free we monetized back then mainly with ads in the game. And for those ads, you need like an ad network to provide you technically with those ads. And um, those ad networks are on both sides. So you you can use them to get new users or you can use them to make money basically in the game. We only use them to make money. And they told us all the time, guys, you need to do marketing. So use acquisition, you need to run campaigns. It will work so well for you. But we were very scared that we will basically just pay money, burn the money, and maybe even like only get the users that we would get anyway. And it went so far that they told us, of course, like because they wanted our business then, um, they told us or asked us for permission to spend their own money for a marketing campaign just to prove us that it's successful and it will work. And we felt like, okay, if you want to burn your money, feel free to do it. Um, but obviously, like it turned out that user acquisition worked very well for us. They did the campaign on iOS because on iOS we got low uh, organic downloads anyway. So we knew that they are real and not only um, replacing the organic downloads. And then like within a month or two, iOS went at this, or became the same size as Android and then like went way, way bigger. And then we realized, okay, so this marketing thing actually works for us. And then we started marketing for Android as well. And within like two, three months, we basically 10x both our revenue, but also our co uh, but also our profit. Wow. Because of course, like the fixed costs are much, much lower for the team and the salaries if you make 10 times more revenue. So even though we spent much more money on marketing, we still increased the profit by the same size as our revenue. Yeah. 
Marketing works, not all marketing works, of course, but the right marketing, I mean, as I said, 10x in a few months. And yeah. there's this, um, there's a principle which we also quote in, the, in our new book, Message Machine, which is that uh, um, you should have an unlimited budget for marketing that works. I.e., if you spend a euro and you get two back, why wouldn't you spend an unlimited amount until you reach a stage where you know the ROI isn't as strong anymore? So that makes a lot of sense. But still, it's something very few founders do. It's usually a number put on a marketing budget rather than saying we want to spend nothing on marketing. It doesn't work, and an unlimited amount of, mar of marketing that works. That is a much healthier approach, I think. Yeah, I mean, in reality, of course, it depends. Like, how are you finance? How is the cash flow? Um, in our case, we got lucky that our payback period was relatively short. So roughly after one month, we were profitable on uh, every euro spent. So with the money we earned earlier, we could get this machine running. Of course, if your product yeah. takes like two years to pay back, then uh, it becomes much harder to see this as this unlimited money spent because of course you need to have the money somewhere <laughs> and you don't know like exactly it's really hard to yeah. predict. You don't, so on one side, you don't want to wait two years um, if you actually make your money back, on the other hand, um, it kind of like it's very risky because maybe you don't make that money back. Maybe after one year, people leave your product. So the, then it becomes so complicated. Yeah. However, for us, yeah. So since we had a short payback period, for us, the limiting factor was never the money spent. It's also why. So later on, obviously, investors wanted to invest, but then we didn't need their money anymore because. We could self-finance all of our cash flows. Yeah, that, that's a comfortable position to be in. I think in the case you mentioned, when it takes a year or two, I think uh, depending on your cash flow and your financial situation, you just pick an, a timeline as a founder and say it has to be ROI positive in say three months, and that it, that means you know you have a clear cutoff point. But moving on, I wanted to ask you about community building because obviously a game is um, relying to some extent on the community, right? So it's not just performance marketing, and then you have isolated players who. Uh, use it on the phone but community matters right yeah so for us community the most important thing for community was to learn what our players want and what they what they don't want and i believe it's and i saw many examples it's really really easy to kind of like detach yourself from the user this is both true for gaming but also for non-gaming and start to believe that you know things better than your audience um, in, in gaming, it's especially easy because in gaming, usually the product managers, founders, developers, and so on, have a very strong opinion of how that game should look like because they, like, games, of course, tend to build opinions stronger and everybody kind of, like, prefers a game in a certain way. F for us, we focused a lot on the community very early on. And if we wouldn't have done this, then I think we would not have been successful. To give you one example, so Atlamertikun is about like having a mining empire. However, the first, and then kind of like optimizing it, kind of like a easy simulation game. And we started with one mine because we launched after two months and we didn't have more time to do more things. And our initial vision was to kind of like stay with one mine, but kind of like make it a bit more complex, add more features that uh, kind of like change the claim gameplay within this mine. And then after we launched this mine, basically everybody in the community told us like, hey, we want more mines. So then we gave them more mines. And what we learned is, so we thought that they kind of like want a different experience than what we initially provided them, which is kind of like building this mine 
and going deeper and deeper and deeper. However, what we then learned luckily was that they don't want a more complex, complicated experience. They just want more of the same, uh, which kind of like makes sense in hindsight because this is what they mm-hmm. enjoy doing. And then of course, like we, we ship more minds and still build features around that to kind of connect everything. But we would have destroyed the core experience if we would have followed our own vision for the product. And luckily we didn't, so we just provided them with more of the same. Yeah, interesting. Um, and what I, what I find fascinating about the next stage of your journey is how quickly you had to become uh, like a real leader, right? You and your friends. Um, because um, I, I'm assuming you never had any formal leadership training as people get in big organizations where it takes years and years and years to rise through the ranks. But you guys had to learn leadership at high speed while also moving to Berlin from Karlsruhe. Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to do that. It kind of like feels like 20 years pressed into two years, basically. Um, we, we always had some guide, guide, guiding principles, I would say. So, for example, we, we always were nice to people, but tough on subjects, kind of like. So, we, we have, if somebody, like we give clear feedback on work if, if something is not good we say why well, we think it's not good but we always treated people fairly we always focus kind of like on the people aspect and this combination worked very well for us we had very high um, expectations of people but we never accepted anybody like who's an asshole anybody who for example screams at people and those things we never accepted them at all in the company so the, these were kind of like the leading principles uh but of course, in reality, it's like we, we never, like as you said, let people before. I remember also writing the book about it the first time I had to let go of somebody. Um, and I really did not make, uh, do a good job the first time because I was like way too tough. I didn't really know like how to bring the message over without being like too tough. And I learned from that later on. Like I, I think I became way better in, in situations like these when I had to let go of somebody. Um, but it's really hard if you like never did this before. At the same time, of course, in our journey, like in the in those years, there were so many things. So the learning curve, we had the chance to learn so fast just because there were so many things happening. I think over the years, we so we went from like zero to 120 people within three years or so, um, which means that I interviewed probably 1,000 people in or wow. maybe even more in three years. And if you do this, so I had like roughly like two, three, four interviews every day. Um, and if you do this, then you learn so much about people. You you kind of like get so much experience in such short time. So obviously, uh, kind of like this helps to become a better leader. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, it's a crazy speed. You, you did this, uh, I mean, from a few people in your own apartment to 100 plus uh, in, in, in the team. And, and when you moved to Berlin, you were also robbed twice, I think. Well, the company was <laughs> robbed rather. Company was dropped. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, Berlin is tough. Yeah, tell me, <laughs> it is. And uh, but but that sucks. I mean, losing all your equipment, all your phones, everything, which you obviously need for work, not just to to communicate, but it's actually the, the instrument on which your product is. I mean, that is that is tall order. Yeah. Uh, so of course it sucks, but at the same time, it's like. Luckily, so luckily we were in a financial situation where it wasn't so bad. And the annoying thing is, so the first time we got robbed, 
the um, insurance didn't want to pay for some reason. So then we quit the insurance and uh, like started switching to a new one. In the meantime, we were robbed again. So this time we also didn't have any insurance. So in the end, we had to pay like all of it out of pocket. And it's like, I think the second time was like over 100K in terms of devices, especially as a gaming company, we had a lot of phones as test devices in the office. Mm-hmm. And so it was a, t- a tough start in Berlin. But I think so if you have a strong core business, and luckily we had, we for us as a company, we managed to survive this. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's still tough. And also like this feeling, you're so powerless. You yeah. so Both times I was the first one in the office and you're there and like just realize everything is gone. So cool. yeah. like, then you start uh, trying to buy new devices and, and do everything somehow fast, send everybody out to get laptops. Um, but I think in hindsight, this was also kind of like a, team building experience you go through hard it was an expensive team building experience but you kind of like go through hardship together and i think it brings the team better together yeah. homosis you know uh, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger <laughs> um yeah i'm curious how you interacted with the team um so as you said you interviewed thousands of plus people you hired over 100 which means you must have pretty strong filters let's start with the hiring and then how you communicate with the team so what what did you look out for and what were red flags when you were hiring? So I think the first important lesson for us in hiring was that you need to hire people that already fit your values as a company. You cannot change the values of people. No. And in the beginning, we hired some people where we thought like, yeah, okay, maybe they're not a good fit right now, but they are good developers, for example. Let's hire them and uh, maybe we will kind of like be able to change them. Uh, but this didn't work. So it, we had to learn if people don't fit the values of a company and they have values, I don't like necessarily mean like the core values that are written down, but just like how you interact as a company, how you work as a company, what's important for you, then this will not fit. Um, of course, it's not so easy to kind of like figure this out. I think a lot of this comes with experience. If you like interview people, if you hired people in the past, you kind of like learn what fits, what doesn't fit. Uh, but this, this is the first lesson for us, for example, it was always important that we hire nice people, but ambition people. So in gaming, sometimes uh, kind of like people don't take it serious enough. And for them, it's more like, hey, so where's the, uh, where's the ping pong table? And I, I want to only work like... Did, did anyone really say that? Did, did someone say this? Where's the big poach? So, I think uh, no, but there are people that like had similar things. And when you know, like, okay, this is not the right, yeah. right place to be. Yes. So for us, like, of course, we're having fun together. We have enough parties and we like enjoy our, like, we enjoy our community within the company. But it's still in the end of this work. Yes. Um, and I think this, so this was one, one example where people didn't fit if they didn't accept the fact that in the end we as a company we still need to earn money we all love games but it is a product we need to do performance marketing we need to have a lifetime value per user uh, it, it is a business it needs to make sense and in, in gaming especially there are a lot of people that are there because they love gaming but they don't like like the business of gaming i would say and, and those, for example, they, they wouldn't fit. Mm-hmm. And of course, like you also need to still need to hire people that are good. So you kind of like need to have both. And one thing to ensure this so was that we had trial days. So everybody who joined query games, uh, in, the, in the very beginning, we did one week. This was a bit too much, but later on we did two days per hire. 
So we invited the people for two days to the office. We flew them in. For, like I think nowadays it's uh, via Zoom. But pre-corona, we like flew them in from all over the world, from the US, from China. Uh, we paid the hotel and we spent two days interviewing them or giving them tasks in which they had to interact with the team to solve. And by doing this, we ensured that the people actually fit the company in the yeah. end. That they are both like team. There's a team fit, but also like a, a performance fit. Yeah, that, that's so important. And, and obviously, then you have a higher retention rate, right? Because if higher the fact yeah. that it's a good fit from both sides, so people tend to stay exactly. Longer. And that's also one thing. So it sometimes happened that people after those two days said like, "Hey, I like you guys, but it's not the right company for me," which is super important to find out earlier because, yeah. like, if you think of it from the other side, in some companies you have like two, three interviews, and then you move continents to join that company. And you don't really know how it is there. How does like the day-to-day -day look? How are the people there? Do I like being with them or not? So it's a very high risk. And with our trial process, we ensured that people know how it is. They were there like for two days. They got to know all the people. Um, so they, they had a very, very good impression of the company. Yeah. Uh, and but, but, but the downside is, of course, like it is a very high investment, both from the company financially and time-wise, but also from the applicant because they need to like pay uh, or, or take two days and spend them in interview process, move, uh, sometimes uh, like fly around the world. Um, and we luckily, so we, we got a lot of applicants. I think in, in the end it was more than 100 applicants per position. So we, we had the likes, like we, we, we were in a position to choose, um, which enabled us to do this process. I think for a lot of startups that are maybe not in gaming or maybe not so well known, um, It's really tough yeah. if you barely get a few applicants for a developer position, then asking them to fly in, it's hard. That's tough, yeah. But because your game was already so big that people in this space knew about it, I thought, oh, cool, that must be a cool company because I like mm -hmm. the game. Is, is that why you're getting got a lot so of applicants? I think this helped. Uh, but I think we the more important thing was that we spent a lot of time working on our brand as a company. So the, the interesting thing in gaming, especially mobile gaming, is that the players, they don't really care about the company brand because they just like they, they download the game and they play the game and they judge the game by the game itself. But of course, for the team, the brand is important. Um, so we basically our brand building was completely focused on building an employer brand. And I think with Quilibri Games, this for some reason um, seemed to work out well. So we spent a lot of time positioning ourselves. We spoke at conferences. We talked about how we see the world, basically. And this was kind of quite attractive for people. And at the same time, of course, so we as a company, we grew quite fast. We were really very successful. And this also, I think, helps to hire people. So a lot of people in the industry were like, okay, this is like the new thing. I want to join them. Yeah. And in general, gaming also makes things easier. I think I think it's much, much easier to find a developer for a gaming company than for like a, a B2B book. Accounting software, yeah. <laughs> something like that. T totally. But you mentioned a very important point, which is your brand. And you started out as Fluffy Fairy Games, which uh, seems random. And I think you confirmed it is random. <laughs> yeah, it is. <laughs> so you used a random, random word generator to come up with... Um, as inspiration, let's say, for the original brand name, Fluffy Fairy Games? Yeah, so in the beginning when we started the company, like if you want to found a company, you need a name. Um, 
So, uh, and by then, like, we, we didn't have the idea of Idle Tycoon yet. So, and we didn't even know, like, what kind of game to build exactly. So, we kind of, like, went uh, online and looked for some generic name. Back then, we thought, like, we want a name that's kind of, like, funny, easy, approachable, easy to remember. Um, I think the first name out of the name generator was Fluffy Unicorn Games, but uh, turned out that this was already taken. So, the next one was Fluffy Fairy Games. It was kind of like a f- funny name, and we, we took it. Uh, and then, like, we built the first game, failed, built the second game, and so on. And then we gained traction and also then gained traction as a company. And this is when we realized that we picked the wrong name because the name is super random. It has nothing to do with the product. It has nothing to do with the company. It has, like, it sends a very wrong idea of how we are as a company, kind of like... Yeah, I, I was about to say, if you fluffy fairy games and you tell me there's no ping pong table and you have to work from nine to six and be quiet at work, so, yeah. so what I expect. So it, it, it really hurt us to hire people and like the, the rest of the company was strong enough to overcome this, but we realized we need to change the name yeah. to something that fits us as a company. And you settled on Colibri Games. Why Colibri? It's a, it's a nice little so, word. But. <laughs> So we, it, it took us one year and two agencies until we found the name we wanted because like, I mean, everything we do as a company is iterative. We do one update per week. We do small changes, but with the name, of course, like, um, you only get one chance or two chances in our case. The one, the first chance we, we got wrong, but it was clear like we can change the name only once. And it was really hard to find a name and a brand that fits us as a company. We had, the first agency like we worked with, we weren't really happy with the names were too aggressive. We wanted a name that's that's nice, that's approachable, but still makes it clear that we are ambitioned and fast as a company. And then eventually we found Colibri Games with the second agency, and this was the perfect fit for us because it's I think it's a very nice, very approachable brand name, um, but still it kind of like it sounds good. It sounds like a company that is successful. And together with like the, the brand colors and the design, it looks very agile. And Colibri, in, uh, it's like the German word for mockingbird. And it's the uh, most agile bird in existence. So we thought it's also a very nice fit for how we work as a company. Yeah. So this was then, like we were super happy with the name. This was the perfect brand for us. But like, again, it took us one year and two agencies until we found that name. Yeah, that, that's, that's such a cool story. But I think you did the right thing, right? At the beginning of a minimum viable brand, yeah. which you don't spend any, any time. It's also very hard to build a brand yeah. if you don't know what you're doing exactly. It's almost impossible. I mean, we could have named yeah. ourselves like something gaming studio or so. Um, but also like it was still a stupid name. So whenever we talk to startup founders now, we tell them to at least think a little bit more about the names yes. that yes. you want to pick. Minimal viable brand, uh, not not random, yeah. but, but thought through. And then the, the iteration or the, the actual brand you grow up with is way more thought out. And that's, I think, where you actually need expert advice. And there are a lot of things to think about from the URL, but what does it mean in other languages to, um, yeah. you know, the, the legal side, is it protected by someone else, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a long list of things that we, you know, it's it's, it's all in message machine. There's all chapter on branding and how you, how you move forward. But what we learned also by writing the chapter was that um, almost every company goes through this. So you can immediately think of a few but actually we look closer so many companies go through this at least on the visual side and often also the name is is changing 
Now, when you when you um, turn that into an employer brand, how how did what, what what was the thing that really worked for you? Because it's easy said, to, oh, we go to conferences, and you know, we have a good brand name, but that doesn't mean thousand people apply to your company. So what, what really made the difference there? So I think there was not one thing. We always look for the quick hack, but there wasn't. Ah, damn it. So I think you need to do, do well on all aspects. And both like, and I think a brand always consists of what you show to the outside, but also who you actually are. Because you can have the nicest website and nicest blog post in the end. Uh, it needs to be authentic. First, because if you then interview the people, they will quickly learn if you are what you promise you are. But secondly, also because at least in gaming, the industry isn't too big. People talk, people switch companies. So it needs to be authentic. And you can't present yourself as like the nicest employee and then be super tough, employer and then be super tough. This doesn't work. So there are employers out there that where you know they are super tough and they have other benefits or whatever, and they are authentic. So I think being authentic is more important than a kind of like having a super nice image. Um, on the like outside brand side, of course, like a nice website, uh, interviews, like all those things help a lot. PR helps. So we, we did some, uh, had some articles. Um, but again, there, there was not the one thing that... Yeah. Uh, works uh, yeah honestly yeah, i totally agree because it's it's that whole uh, the whole candidate journey needs to be consistent and, and as you said authentic right so you need to think through what the brand stands for then come up with your employer value proposition yeah and also so for example one thing i always in interviews i like told them what i think is good i told them what i think is maybe different at colibri than at other companies and some people like it, some people don't like it. But I think it's very important to be upfront and then the candidates can decide if they like it or not. Yeah. Um, and it's just, I think, much better than kind of like acting as if everything is uh, nice and hiding the things that they might not like and then only later to let them discover this later on in the process or even when they're hired and then they are unhappy. Yeah. So I think it's kind of like, so in our example, I always told, told them, so we were super nice, we're super nice people. We don't accept assholes. Um, but it's about work. We want to make money. We are ambitious. We want to be one of the most successful gaming companies in the world. And this means that if you're here, you need to provide value. You need to push. You need to work hard. And there are a lot of people that like this, yeah. that want to work at a company that is ambitious. But there are also people that don't like this. Yeah, and yeah. But that's good. I think if you're upfront with this, yeah. it, it helps. And then they drop out of the process if they want some job where they can yeah. like relax a bit more and play ping pong. Uh, ambitious people want to work for ambitious companies. To totally. Yeah. And even though you do all these things right, you still sometimes run into issues internally, right? And you, you mentioned a few in the book. There was the, the new work contracts, for instance, or new mission statement, which, which read, we are here to serve our players. I was like, mm, I'm not sure we're servants. Don't like that. What, what did you learn out of these experiences? Um, so I learned two different things. And the first thing uh, with the contract, so basically the background there was we, in the beginning, like we basically wrote our contracts on our own. We copied them somewhere uh, off the internet, copy and pasted them together. And then we had like a lot of different contract versions. And then later on, like uh, this became very chaotic. So at some point we decided we need proper contracts now. And then kind of like we just replaced them or gave everybody the new contracts to sign. And for some people, like some things became better, some things became worse. Um, but 
this was really a communication issue because for us, it was like, yeah, just sign a new contract, whatever. And then some people discovered in some clause that like, it's not relevant that something like that is at least on the legal side worse for them. Um, even though I believe the contracts are better overall. So, and then they felt like betrayed or felt unhappy. So kind of like we, we took them back, we took the rollout back and then we communicated a lot. And then eventually um, we did the rollout again with very small changes. And then like later on, so nobody that we hired ever had any issues with the contracts afterwards. Um, but basically, so what we did is kind of like we presented this effect and at the same time, we didn't give them any kind of like benefit or whatever. And then they found it weird. So I learned that like, if you want to do something like this, first, I would never do this again. I think I would just leave them with their old contracts. Uh, even if the new contract would be better or worse for them, it's a risky subject to touch. But secondly, kind of like I learned that you need to, so it's, it's not about the contract itself. It's about like communication about what they will get. And if you, for example, give somebody like five things that are better and one thing that's worse, they will not be happy. They will be like, yeah, okay, but it's nice with those five things, but what about this one thing? Can't I have both? Why can I not have like all the things? And then we had to do some some compromises on some. So for example, in the notice period, we had a longer notice period in the in new contract. And some people liked the longer notice period. Some people didn't like it. And then uh, like, la like later on, everybody now has, uh, or at least when we were still creepy, has a three months notice period and it's totally fine and it's totally normal to have a three months notice period. But we had some people that had one month before and then we wanted to change it for everybody to three months. And some people were super happy about this because it's like both ways, right? So yeah. um, it's in the startup world, you have more security as an employee, but some people, maybe the ones that weren't so happy uh, with the company uh, anyway, like they didn't want to increase their notice period. So then in the end we had, basically we let them pick their notice period and then we had some people with one month, some people with three months. Yeah. Um, but basically like this whole thing was kind of like from a communication aspect and I wouldn't do it this way again. Yeah. The second thing though, with the um, slogan, we are here to serve our players, there were, was like a local, uh, a small like vocal minority that didn't like the fact that we are kind of like there to serve our players, as you said. And I, so the people, they, they left Colibri, I think a few months later because they were not those, like they were not fitting the company with the values. And for me, I was so like shocked when I read what they wrote that like, it's not about the players. It's about us as, as employees of the company. And uh, like, I would never have thought that people would think that way. And kind of like, those were the same people that then said they want more money. And I'm like, Hey, but like this money that we pay you, this comes directly from people playing for paying for our product. Like in my opinion, they didn't really connect one and one and they clearly did not fit our core values. So this, I would do it again every time. And kind of like, if people don't like it, then I think it's very clear that they are not the right company. Because in the end, I think yeah. the customer is the reason why the company exists. Yeah, yeah. I, I do agree with that because um, vision, mission statement, etc. I think, yes, you can consult widely, but the decision-making circle needs to be small. This is not a democracy. You end up with um, very wishy-washy statements. So if Yeah, they... and even the thing is like, even if it's like a democracy, just the standpoint that they disagree that we are there to 
serve our players is something that I totally don't agree with. Yeah. Right. So you as, as the owners, as the founders, then say, this is what we believe in. This is what this company stands for. And that's leadership. And as you said, not everyone agrees with that. And it's yeah. good to know that, I suppose, as well. Yeah. Um, now, two years ago, I believe, you decided to take the next step with Colibri and sort the company. Yeah. And what I found remarkable here is not just that it happened and it happened at this massive scale, you got over 100 million for it, but also that you didn't get any investors in the beginning. And in the end, people just running, you know, knocking on your door, said, please, please, please sell to us. And I mean, I just imagine the, the investors who said no in the very beginning, they're probably by their, by their behinds when they, <laughs> you know, heard, heard about the news. Yeah, maybe they did, maybe they didn't. But I think in the end, um, it's... Like it would have been very hard to justify investing in us because mm -hmm. we we've never been successful before and we had no relevant experience in the field. So basically, what we had standing for us was our like work ethic, was our will, uh, and us trying again, 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 again. Um, so I'm, I'm not mad about. Uh, so with some of them, we're good friends now. Yeah. Um, it's just it like I, mean, you, you I think we decision. were kind of like the outlier yeah. so, and I understand why they didn't invest yeah. yeah at some point then about the exit so basically uh, I think we as a company grew up we went to a point where we figured okay now it might make sense to partner up with like a global gaming empire like Ubisoft uh, because I think at some point so for example we thought about what should we do about China and China very complicated we would have had to open an office in china if we would have wanted to stay in the market probably and like those things are so complicated and for a global company like ubisoft like 15,000 people i believe worldwide there it's easy for them to help us with those aspects and it's also i think kind of like it was the logical next step everybody at colibri games who worked there full-time had shares in the company so we always had the promise that we will eventually sell the company uh, and basically yeah, pay them out their shares and reward them for our success so it it just became the next logical step next logical step and you have to basically keep it very quiet while you're negotiating and then you have to tell everyone of course at the same time That's yeah, the exactly nature. i mean especially because um, ubisoft is a publicly traded company so kind of like you, you really don't want rumors about potential acquisitions um so we, but we still like flew around the world to meet people, etc. So it was it wasn't easy to keep it quiet, uh, but eventually, like in in the end, we we managed the to. End, yeah. <laughs> and then there are still like people involved. The legal team is involved. The finance finance team is involved. The leadership team is involved. So there are quite some people, uh, but luckily we could trust everybody, yeah. and nobody leaked anything. I mean, what what a story! I can only recommend if you if you read German, read the book. <laughs> it's it's such an amazing read, and uh, it's it's also a very quick and fun read. So, I always ask this at the end, and I know you, you you're short on time now. But um, what's your best communications advice, Dania? So, if I would have to pick one, I would say you need to be authentic. You need to believe in what you say. You should not think about what other people if, if other people will like it or not. You should think about what do you want to communicate, how do you want to be as a company, say it out loud, and then you will filter out the ones that like it and filter out the ones that don't like it. Yeah, wonderful. Perfect last words. Daniel Stemmler, one of the co-founders of Colibri, and uh, thank you so much for your insights. Such an amazing journey, and thank you all for listening. Thank you, Oliver. Thank you.